Welcome to this week's edition of the Contact Centre podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Mitchell, and I'm the Features Editor here at Call Centre Helper. In this episode, we'll be looking at the topic of channel shift with Dr. Nicola Millard, the Head of Customer Insights and Futures at BT. Nicola is a favourite of our webinar programme and conducts industry-leading research into customer trends and the digital workplace, some of which she shares during our thought-provoking conversation. We also have been there from our research getting some feedback from customers that they absolutely hate when you get the first message when you pick up the phone and dial the number is, did you know you could do this online? Because typically, I tried that! The more channels you give customers, the more channels they will use. And the trouble then is around things like channel duplication, that the customer might send an email and be on a chat session and be sitting in the phone queue all about the same problem. Their job for the agents tends to get harder once you put more automation up front. And again, the economic case then starts to get interesting because you have to invest in your agents. You have to upskill your agents. You might also have to pay your agents a little bit more. This episode of the Contact Centre podcast is sponsored by Genesis. Genesis is the global leader in omnichannel customer experience and contact centre solutions. More than 11,000 companies in over 100 countries trust the Genesis customer experience platform to help them connect effortlessly with consumers across any channel, voice, text, web chat, and social. If you would like to see a demonstration of the Genesis Pure Cloud contact center platform, visit callcenterhelper.com forward slash demo. We hear a lot about the growth of channels like chat, messaging apps, and now even video. With that being said, is the phone still relevant and should it still be a key part of your digital strategy? Oddly enough, the the research that we've been doing is showing that the phone is still usually either the number one or the number two choice for customers that have a really kind of meaty problem. So particularly, we call them customers in crisis. Their instinct is to often lift the phone up, mainly because it's customers tend to go for the channel they think is going to be easy. And I think the phone, they don't think it's going to be necessarily an easy experience, but I think it's one of those ones that takes on complexity and emotiveness very well. So we're seeing that shift, I think, into the phone channel. It's not going away. It's not necessarily first preference, but if it if it becomes a complex or emotive problem, the phone actually takes that on pretty well. So as long as you've got an agent that can actually cope, I keep saying there's no point in just having a lovely person that can't help. The guys that typically are on the phone channel are now taking some very, very hard stuff. So it's the complex stuff that requires a conversation or it's the emotive stuff that requires the agent to calm the customer down. So yeah, I, I don't think the phone is going away. It's certainly going down in preference. I think that's largely because we've got a whole load of other channels, particularly self-service. I think customers rather like that because it puts them in control. I think by the time we actually get to that point at which we're going to have to lift the phone, it is because we have quite a big problem. Sometimes it's also, of course, we've been having problems with the self-service channel. Hence, we also have been there from our research getting some feedback from customers that they absolutely hate when you get the first message when you pick up the phone and dial the number is, did you know you could do this online? Because typically, 
I tried that. That's why I'm bringing you. So it can be symptomatic of the fact that the digital channels are causing issues that's causing the phone call. And then we're also sort of getting feedback that because of that complexity, you know, the agents are having to put the customers on hold or they have to kind of consult either a database or some of their colleagues to actually figure out the answer to the problem. And I think that's actually not necessarily a bad thing. It's basically the agents are having to work pretty hard. They're having to engage their brains because it is the complex stuff. And I think the challenge is, firstly, you've got to upskill your agents to take on that complexity, but also, you know, provide them with with the knowledge resources and the network of experts, if you like, to try and solve these very complex and emotive problems on behalf of the customer. So a long-winded answer, but I don't think the phone is going away. I think it is a very good channel for that complex stuff. Yeah, I think it is still very relevant for those kind of emotive issues that you were kind of alluded to there. So why do you think contact centers want to move customers away from their channel so, so much? It's all to do with cost, but it's quite interesting that, you know, typically I work with a lot of retail banking customers. So we're typically on retail banking seeing things like calls are going down. So we're not getting as many contacts coming through, but call handling times are going up by as much as 40%. So if you're just looking at it from a cost basis, yes, the phone could be an expensive channel, but actually it's adding value to the customer. A lot of this is driven by cost. And I keep saying when when we look at channels like email, for example, email can get very expensive as a channel. I always consider email to be a little bit like a slow tennis match. Now, firstly, customers like email because it does put them in control. They kind of not question in. It's on their time. They don't have to stick around for the answer. So there are a lot of benefits from a customer perspective around email. But on average, a lot of email conversations, it's two or three email interactions. So if you look at that as a total, that becomes quite expensive, which is why a lot of the clients I talk to are quite keen to move people away from email and onto chat, which because of the way, well, again, you know, depends how you manage it, but chat can be a far cheaper channel. It's a synchronous channel. So hopefully you can figure out the problem and get it solved all in one go. But it does require the customer to be there. So there always swings and roundabouts about channels, but it is ultimately a lot to do with cost. The trouble is that it's not necessarily as simple an equation of I'll take them off the phone and put them into chat because that's cheaper. One of the things that we found certainly with channel choices is the more channels you give customers, the more channels they will use. And the trouble then is around things like channel duplication that the customer might send an email and be on a chat session and be sitting in the phone queue all about the same problem. And then you get double handling or inconsistent replies depending on who is actually manning which channel because maybe the social media channel isn't run by the same people as the contact center so they might give a completely different answer which will then confuse the customer which will probably generate more contact so i think it's not as easy as x channel costs this much y channel costs this much that shift people i think it's much more around well let's try and understand the customer behaviors as to why they're using that channel and then actually do realize that sometimes they will use more than one channel at the same time to answer the same question and that's got a cost associated with it as well. So the costing tends to be maybe you you need to take a a slightly more sort of umbrella view of of how channels are being used by customers rather than siloing the channels. Yeah, I think that's one common mistake, as you say, just trying to kind of shift customers to the cheapest channel. Are there any other kind of common mistakes that you found organizations making when they become too anxious to switch customers from one channel to another? 
Well, as I said, I think it often is that naive assumption that maybe you can switch one channel off and people will migrate to another. I always say from a behavioral perspective, which is where I typically come from, customers typically are in the mindset. They don't think channels. They have a goal. We talk about omni-channel all the time, and we did actually sit some customers down and interview them, and we asked them, are you omni-channel? And they had no clue what we were talking about because, you know, that's the word we use. It's not the word that customers use. So it rapidly became apparent from those interviews and a lot of our subsequent research that customers have a goal in mind, and then typically they'll go to the channel that they think is going to get them to their goal as easily as possible because, obviously, we want an easy life as well. So easy tends to be an absolute primary driver for customers. Customers. And also that control piece I mentioned earlier, customers do quite like to be in control, which is why if we can give them self-service tools that work appropriately for the appropriate goal, I think they quite like solving problems themselves. They don't have to contact us as organizations. So, yeah, I think we've got to think about that ease of use and that goal and then try and signpost the customer better in terms of making sure they get to the right channel to fulfill that goal. And typically, again, from The research that we've done, customers tend to fall into three categories when they're doing goals, and we call them three intention states, which are typically positive, negative, or neutral. So we call the positively motivated customers visionaries. Visionaries tend to have, you know, they want to do what they're doing. So they're going on holiday, they're getting married, they're planning the perfect picnic. So they do their research. We call them shopper swats, you know, that they'll really do their research and they're willing to invest time, energy and effort to do that. Now, they sometimes need a bit of a prod because choice can be a double-edged sword. It's great to have choice, but too much choice means that we're not sure what's right for us. So they might just need a bit of advice. Sometimes you could put a bot in. Sometimes they need human contact with an expert. But as long as you don't confuse them, visionaries are not necessarily problematic. They will use a lot of channels, though. So again, that assumption that we move them onto one channel and they'll stay in that one channel doesn't necessarily work with visionaries. The problem, of course, also comes with visionaries that if they then become angry, frustrated, or they can't get to their goal, they flip into a very different mode. And we call these customers in crisis. And customers in crisis typically use channels in a very different way. So I mentioned earlier, the phone tends to be a quite primary channel. When we get into that crisis point, we think we're going to have to lift the phone up and we need this problem sorted out. So visionaries use lots of channels. Customers in crisis don't. They typically do want to lift the phone up or they want human contact. They'll go for chat as well. If all of that fails, they might go onto social media for a moan and a whinge. But, you know, These are quite difficult customers to sort out. They are quite difficult customers. At the extreme of anger and frustration, our short-term memory capacity gets compromised. So we don't take in a lot of detailed FAQs and we don't take on complexity terribly well. So we need to make it very simple for customers in crisis. And sadly, that is the bulk of customers that come in through the phone to the contact center. And then we've got the midpoint that the utilitarians who are simply doing transactional emotion neutral stuff. And that's where things like self-service tends to come in very well because, you know, we don't need wow. We don't need a conversation. We just need the tools that enable us to do those transactional things like checking balance or buying carrots or, you know, I I don't need a particularly elaborate experience at that point. I just want to do it fast and I want to do it easily and I want to do it quick. You know, all of those things become very important to utilitarians. So instantly we start to see, you know, that planning map, the, the way that we signpost customers may depend on what their goal is and what that intention state beneath the goal is. And I think that's the key to 
doing an omni-channel strategy, much as I hate the word omni-channel, I'm going to use it. But, you know, how do we start to introduce the right channels for customers and how do we signpost customers to those right channels? Also, bearing in mind, they might flip between the intention states as they go along, depending on how that experience is going. So do you think we should kind of, as we would for a customer journey mapping, be kind of mapping the decisions that customer makes and then kind of aligning a strategy to that? Completely, because, you know, I always say that we tend to be obsessed with channels customers are not. And I think we we just basically have to bear in mind what customers want from us as organizations, try and figure out where their goal state is and absolutely try and make that journey. Almost handhold them, signpost them, you know, help them to achieve their goal using the tools that are appropriate. And sometimes that is a phone number. I think some organizations in a desperate race to try and cut their phone calls are hiding their phone number. And, and sometimes a customer customer in crisis is just hunting for that phone number. And if it's really, really difficult, you'll then get channel leakage that they'll go off onto all sorts of other channels until they find the phone number. And again, that can cause cost. So if you're looking at managing cost, you need to just look at those behaviors and say, actually, this could be generating more costs simply by if I hide the phone number, if I put the phone number up there, yes, they will call us. But actually, that might be the most effective way of doing it. I think that's an interesting kind of term that I haven't really heard before of channel leakage. Is this kind of a metric that's coming in now that can be measured to kind of assess the effectiveness of our omni-channel strategy? Channel leakage, yeah, absolutely. I think we need to sort of recognize that that sort of behavioral stuff that's going on with customers and and sort of say, well, how are they using the channels that they're using? And that is difficult to track because we can't always see. And as I said, we tend to silo those channels within organizations as well. So we don't necessarily have a view across all channels. The classic one being, you know, the social channel is often very much distinct to other channels and isn't necessarily measured as part of a contact center, which is why that sort of contact center strategy side needs to encompass all channels really it's not just about the phone anymore we need to be cognizant of how customers are using all those channels and it is sometimes very very difficult to track it that's why we do an awful lot of interviews and, and research to try and sort of figure out well what are the behaviors with customers what are they trying to do and how are they shifting channels and why you know why do they feel the need sometimes to start on one channel typically they will start digital and then they'll shift around depending on what they want to do and whether they've managed to do it on the digital channels. So yeah, I think we need to take a slightly less channel-centric view of customer experience journeys and take a much more customer-centric view. I think kind of one of the really in-channels that I'm certainly seeing at the moment is that customers really like to use is live chat. Would you kind of go along with this and why do you think it might be so popular for customers? I mean, our research, we're about to do our new piece of research on customers, but our previous research was showing in two years that we'd had a 20% growth in preference with customers on chat. And it was the, chat is kind of where it's at. It's the rising channel in terms of customer preference. And I think that, again, you know, trying to delve into why that is, it's a digital first channel. So that's the first thing. It's an, regarded as an easy channel by customers. So again, you know, they found a chat button and they can push it. Actually, economically, it tends to have a, from an organizational perspective, they quite like the economics of chat because you can have, obviously, it depends how you manage it and how complex the chats are, but you can have concurrency and and agents working on multiple chat sessions. But the more complex those chats get, probably the less simultaneous chats they can cope with. So I always say two to three chats is probably a maximum. And then actually, we did a lot of agent interviews at one point around chat and agents like it as well, because they don't have to make small talk. 
you'd have to put customers on hold. So all of that, I think you know, you've got kind of a three-way pull. Customers like it. It's easy. It's a digital first channel. Agents like it. And the economics tend to stack up. I'm not sure that in the new iteration of the research, we're going to see quite as much growth. But I think it is one of the few channels, in fact, that is on an upward trajectory in terms of take up with customers. It's certainly one that I like to myself use. And I think I've been to a contact center recently that used it well in terms of agents handle two and then they can request a third one to kind of empower them to take on extra responsibility. They think they have kind of the time and the resources to kind of cope with it and I think it's obviously dependent on which contact center you're in as well because if you're a charity and it's a very emotional live chat maybe just the one-to-one so maybe it wouldn't be the cheapest option in that regard. Yeah and I think as you put more automation in as well so obviously chat and chat bots tend to go together that actually the inevitable consequence of that is what we've seen in the phone channel so you get the complex and emotive stuff that the automation doesn't handle terribly well so you know inevitably the job for the agents tends to get harder once you put more automation up front and again the economic case then starts to get interesting because you have to invest in your agents you have to upskill your agents you might also have to pay your agents a little bit more yeah i think that brings on to the topic of how the advisor role will change that's just something i do want to get into but just finishing on live chat is there any ways in which you think contact centers can better promote live chat and self-service options for those utilitarian customers that you were talking about earlier I think there's a fine balance. Again, another thing that's come up in interviews that customers tend to hate is the very invasive chat service that as soon as you get onto the website, there's a big box that comes up and going, do you want to chat with us? And I always say, you know, if you treat that as a human, it's kind of the equivalent of walking into the retail store and the person right at the door saying, can I help you? It's almost kind of too much in your face. So I think it is around not hiding the option, actually promoting the option, making sure it's very visible to the customer, but not making it too much in your face because actually customers might not welcome that as much as you might think but yeah I think if you can make the chat button obvious without being intrusive I think that makes it easy for customers also I mean contextualize it as well you know we I know originally put our chat button right up front in bt.com and we got people just sort of randomly pushing it and asking weird questions but if you can then sort of position your chat buttons on certain products that maybe are more complex that are likely to get questions you can then also skills-based route that to the best advisor and also the dynamic chat as well so don't put a chat button up if you've got no agents to actually answer it so again sort of managing that customer experience around chat but I think that the positive news on chat is customers typically do like it so as I said it's one of the few growth channels that we're seeing. That idea actually of having kind of live chat buttons more obvious on kind of products which require kind of specialist advisors and routing them through is very interesting use of technology actually. Another technology that we you kind of introduced earlier was chatbots on the channel. Which companies have you seen using chatbots well and do you think they can be a good channel to shift to? Yeah, I mean, chatbots are an interesting one. I've got about 13 or 14 different projects around chatbots now in all sorts of industries as well, mainly financial services. I think the problem is the hype at the moment. And then there are two sides of the hype. So firstly, the research that we did was showing that something like, I think 73% of customers were saying they thought that chatbots could potentially improve the customer experience. And that was two years ago. So that was peak hype cycle. I think 
the experience that I've had with chatbots, and we're going to see on the new research, hopefully, if that's changed, but the experience I've had with practical chatbots has been very mixed. And I would say biased towards the bad rather than the good. <laughs> so I would say that there are some horrendous experiences I've had with chatbots that are just very limited or simply couldn't answer the question, couldn't understand, got up with, with the wrong answer or simply gone, I'm sorry, I don't understand you. You're going to have to start again with a live agent, which is not a great customer experience. So from a customer perspective, I think it's kind of 80-20 in terms of 20% are really good, 80% are really not very well deployed at all. So there are some good ones out there. I've always said that I like the ones that typically are narrow and deep because they tend to work very well. These things work by data. So if you've got a narrow and deep data set, it tends to be much more effective than a sort of wide dispersed data set that basically can't do anything much in any great depth. So the supermarket did one called Margot the Wine Bots, which was just looking at food wine combinations, because that's a really sticky topic. You need to know wine very well to know what wine goes with which food. And I don't. And I'm terrible at it. So simply having a bot that will help you, you know, if you're having fish and chips for supper, a bot that says, you know, champagne would be perfect with that. Obviously, that's going to increase the cost of my fishy Friday a bit, but apparently that is true. Champagne goes very well with fish and chips. You know, that helps me navigate the minefield of a quite complex topic where there is a lot of choice. I think the bots that don't work so well tend to be, you know, that ask me anything is very difficult to do. Also, where is it deployed? So we did some stuff around complaints, probably not the best place to put a bot because complaints can be very long. That's the first problem. So, and human language is vastly redundant. So you need to strip out all of the irrelevant bits and identify the important bits to the bots in order for the bot to understand what that complaint's about rather than, you know, the blow by blow account of what's happened to the customer. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge I've said is a very big one, and particularly in the UK and Ireland, where you get people being sarcastic when they complain. And, and again, algorithms don't get sarcasm. You need to teach an algorithm about sarcasm. And sarcasm can be quite subtle. My favorite example is when we picked up that an algorithm had, you know, said was positive, which was, it was so good to see your maintenance department hadn't spoiled things by making unnecessary repairs. Now, we know that's sarcastic. I don't even know how I would teach an algorithm that that's sarcastic. And there's another one that we picked up, which was to a particular train operating company saying, thank you for my free sauna this morning. And again, the bot wouldn't know that that's a negative experience because it's never been on a train. It's never been in a sauna. Stick the two together. It is quite unpleasant. It wouldn't know that. I'd need to teach it. So you have to tag a lot of this stuff. And that's a lot of work. That's a lot of cost. And then, you know, that bad experience of having a conversation with the bots and then the bot stopping and you having to repeat the entire experience through another channel with a human agent. A lot of the innovation stuff that we've been doing has, and this is hard as well, by the way, is to try and take that context and figure out how do I skills-based route it to the right agent with the right skills. And also easier is to take that entire conversation across to the agent desktop so they can actually read through it and figure out what the customer's been saying so the customer doesn't have to repeat themselves. So I think, you know, chatbots are very trendy at the moment. I think the question I always ask is, why do you want one? And the answer should be, it's to free my agents time up to deal with the more complex stuff. But then you also have to think about, you know, appropriate deployment. Customers in crisis probably won't deal with chatbots terribly well. So again, is it the right place to put a bot? Yeah, I think there are still lots of misconceptions 
about chatbots, as you say, like detecting sarcasm and that there's kind of, they're almost a plug and play device when they take many months of training. And that's probably why we're seeing a shift towards agent assist. So the advisor can help train them, which is another kind of interesting thing. But if chatbots are to continue to improve and self-service is improving as well, these transactional contacts will surely decrease and decrease. Maybe with, do you think businesses will turn to a more proactive uh, strategy to decrease these contact volumes? Absolutely. And I think, you know, proactive is one of those big ones that is a future trend that is starting to get momentum. And I always say a lot of these things do not work by magic. A lot of this works by data. And when you're looking at proactive, actually, that's the second step. The first step is around personalization. So you need to learn about the customer. And that is all about the customer teaching you about them. I call this a me economy. And this is interesting because customers are willing to do that if they get something back. So I've I've said, you know, all along that Amazon and Netflix have been doing this for many, many years. They learn absolutely everything about me. I teach them and I'm willing for them to have my data because they then personalize the experience. They maybe curate the choices that I'm likely to make to the ones that, you know, are appropriate to me. So there's a benefit to doing that. But until you understand the customer, you probably can't be proactive with them. So once you've got personalization, you can then start to say, well, how do I tell customers things that they need to know through the channel that they need to know it at the time they need to know? And again, working you know, in the AI space, you can use algorithms to do an awful lot around that. So trying to figure out who the customer is, what they're likely to know, what channels they tend to use, and again, when are they going to be using them? So what time should we send these proactive messages out? If you get that right, there's a benefit to the customer. Again, the me economy, I will give you my data because you're telling me stuff I need to know before I need to tell you. There is a problem there if it's irrelevant stuff and it's irritating. I always, again, let's use a human analogy. If I'm walking down the street and someone's continuously tapping me on the shoulder saying, did you know, I'm soon going to punch them. So again, that's the point at which I go, no, you're not having my data anymore because you're just annoying. So there's a very fine line there. So we've got personalized, then proactive, and then we can start to kick the algorithms in and start to get predictive. So using that data to start to anticipate what the customer's next move is, what they're likely to want before they even know. And again, this is all about data. Obviously, you know, supermarkets especially have got very good at doing this to the extent at which one or two of them have got so good that I was talking to one of the big supermarkets probably last year, actually, who was saying that they could tell if you're about to get divorced from your data. Now, there's a difference between knowing that and doing something about it. And I think that's where that human in the loop thing comes in, because it's not necessarily appropriate to send somebody a message saying, I'm sorry to hear you're getting divorced because you might not know. So maybe subtle things like offers for wine might be appropriate. But it's really just looking at you probably need a human in the loop at that point to try and say, well, if we're going to become creepy, which again, if you're looking at human analogies, that's just the stranger that seems to know everything about you because they've been watching you. I'm probably going to say, no, you're not having my data anymore. And under GDPR, you know, I can at any point withdraw my consent. So I think this is a really interesting one. And I think as we get into that realm of you know smart buildings, smart homes, internet of things, where there's a lot more data potentially flowing about customers, we also as corporates need to think about well, what's the benefit for the customer, not just the corporate, for the customer of sharing that information and what can we add in terms of the customer experience in terms of personalizing it, becoming proactive, and then if appropriate, becoming predictive. I think that's very interesting as well, the part especially of you saying how all this needs a human in the loop. And that makes me think back to 
kind of a little bit what we talked about earlier and how the contact center advisor role is changing. How do you think maybe the advisor role will change in the next 10 years? Well, we did a paper last year called Botman versus Superagent, mainly to dispel the myth that the robots were going to rise and replace all of our human agents. And I, I think, you know, Contact centers are interesting in that we've already, even before we've deployed AI, we've put a lot of automation up, whether it's IVR or chatbots or self-service. That does not necessarily eliminate the role of the human advisor. It changes it. And as part of the Botman versus Superagent paper, what we did was to put together some personas that we thought might represent the kind of role of the future agent. So we created Sally, who is our Swiss army knife, I call her. So this is the agent that kind of picks up where the automation has failed and it's the human triage if you like so probably the closest to our current advisor base in that that's what they've been doing a lot anyway so it is really around trying to figure out what the customer problem is and finding the best route to actually solve that problem so Sally as I said she'll also be teaching the bots and teaching the automation to get more accurate but she's probably closest to the current agent skill set we have but we then have over and above that we've got Paula the problem solver I describe Paula's role as sticking the fork into the spaghetti of back-end process. And it's typically where the computer has said no, because a lot of automation is rules-based. And as we know, sometimes customers just fall between the gaps in process. So Paula needs to take that up, you know, figure out what's going wrong, and then manage the process on behalf of the customer so that it gets back on track. That often requires them to integrate in with supply chain, integrate in with the rest of the business, which is why we're also seeing things like unified comms become much more prevalent in the contact center because it's a complex job. The contact center is merely liaising with the rest of the business and the rest of the supply chain on behalf of the customer. So they need to be able to contact and figure out what's going on and what's gone wrong in order to solve the process. So Paula's definitely they're going to need a lot of Paula's. Natalie's a negotiator. Now, negotiation is a very interesting one. Typically, we would look at the high-end escalations teams as the most close analogy, I guess, to current advisor roles. But negotiation is rules-based, so you can automate a certain amount of that, but it's also very heavily social and emotional. So it is about give and take. And that's a very human skill. And that's also quite a difficult skill to acquire. So I think we're probably going to need quite a lot of Natalie's who are negotiating with the customers to try and achieve a win-win situation. Then we've got our experts. So we've got the expert advisor and the techie. Um, I think I called him Tony the techie. I don't know why. But, you know, the, the kind of thing that Tony does is he's an extreme technical expert. And I don't just mean IT. It could be any technical expertise. It could be legal. Someone who's acquired expertise through years in a job. And the trouble with that is they acquire a lot of tacit knowledge, which is quite difficult to write down. And I can tell from experience that actually one of my first jobs in BT back in the 90s, believe it or not, was doing neural networks and AI for complex fault diagnostics. And the way that we did that, we didn't have a lot of data in the 90s. So I had to go and interview engineers and experts as to how they actually diagnosed faults. And you get a lovely decision tree, you know, based on rules. And then you'd hit the bottom of that decision tree and you go, why did you decide it was X rather than Y? And they would go, well, gut feeling. And that, firstly, gut feeling is you can't articulate it. So if you can't write it down, it's not going to go into a neural network. That's the first problem that we have. A lot of that expertise is in people's heads. Now, I keep saying that experts can teach 
the bots but actually there's only a certain amount they can teach it sometimes and you do need again that human in the loop and I think those experts are we've called it networked expertise for a while they need to be integrated in with that skill set that we need in the contact center then I also put Chris who was a crowdsourced advisor in and I keep saying this is kind of the gig economy sometimes there are certain niches of expertise or maybe you get overflow of demand that requires a certain skill set that you don't necessarily need to employ full time, but they're out in the cloud and you can kind of pull that expertise in when you need it. So these are very much your, your sort of cloud advisors and you maybe pay them per contact. We're seeing that in certain industries already. I don't think that's going to go away either. And I think the beauty of things like cloud is that you can do that. You don't have to necessarily have hardwired advisors in all the time. So, I mean, they're the kind of profiles and personas that we kind of developed around, well, how is that advisor skill set? going to change. And I think, you know, you can see that certain of those skill sets we kind of have already and can develop outwards, maybe upskill, give better knowledge bases to those guys. Some of those skills are are very new to the contact center space. I think it's always interesting when new technologies and approaches come in, although they do take away the jobs that we know now, they always create more that we don't tend to envisage. So I think that new research is quite helpful for enlightening the future of the advisor in the call center and how different it's going to look i find fascinating and i think it's one of the key takeaways that we've learned today so thanks nicola and where can our listeners go if they want to keep up to date with all of your latest research well probably the best bet is to find me on linkedin or twitter so twitter i'm at doc nicola linkedin you can find me so as, as our new research comes out generally i do sort of try and tell people about it and give links so there will be a new piece hopefully coming out i think october november time which is our usual we've called it autonomous customer in the past years but that's our global survey of customer attitudes that should be coming out in the next few months fingers crossed so yeah i'll be telling people about that and how they can download that hopefully around october november time so yeah excellent well thank you for joining us today absolute pleasure thank you That's all for this episode. Thank you to Dr. Nicola Millard from BT for joining us today. This episode of the Contact Centre podcast is sponsored by Genesis. Genesis is the global leader in omnichannel customer experience and contact centre solutions. More than 11,000 companies in over 100 countries trust the Genesis customer experience platform to help them connect effortlessly with consumers across any channel voice, text, web chat, and social. If you would like to see a demonstration of the Genesis Pure Cloud Contact Center platform, visit callcenterhelper.com forward slash demo. This episode is the last of our first series of podcasts, but due to their success, we'll be back again in October 2019, talking to Peter Massey, the Managing Director of Bud, about customer engagement. Thank you for listening and we look forward to bringing you even more engaging content in the near future. The Contact Centre podcast is produced by Call Centre Helper, the leading contact centre magazine. You can subscribe to our podcasts or give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also access our entire range of podcasts through the Call Centre Helper website by visiting callcentrehelper.com forward slash podcasts.